step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Creative Elite Arts Company, located in Chicago, Illinois, and Dallas, Texas. We're your one-stop shop for everything art. We teach all the genres of dance, instrumental, and vocal music, modeling, culinary arts, drums and drill, and so much more. Check out our website at creativeelitesartcompany.com. Like and follow us on social media outlets or call us today, 312-756-9647. Join us in our mission to change the world one child at a time. Creative Elite Arts Company. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Another episode of Finesse Media Podcast, Season 3. And as I mentioned to y'all right before the break, we got another finesse of someone on that's finessing the motherfucking game. And I'm going to keep it straight, real, straight hood, because this episode, not really hood, but as authentic as possible. Why? Because I got my brother, uh, who I've known for many years, but growing in, in high school together, uh, I'm happy to have him on. It's a really, really good time to have him on, because this month we're celebrating all things black is February, so it's all blackness. But joining me for the first time for a real exclusive interview, my brother, author Jimmy Jones, author of Silent King. We're going to talk about his book, his recent book, and, and his journey uh, in writing this book and, and talking about all those things. So, again, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Jimmy Jones. What's up, bro? How you doing, bro? Long I'm, time no see, right? I'm doing good. This novel, my brother, Silent King. Um, it, it, it was super loud. As the title reads, Silent King, it spoke very loud uh, to me being an individual from the inner city, Inglewood, you know, and also being in that Chicago, you know, midst of everything that goes on. So certainly I'm grateful to have you on to share your journey and to share your story about uh, Silent King. What gave you the title? Let's talk about that first. Where did the title Silent King come from? Well, the title, uh, when you're sitting down writing a book, you'll come up with a title initially, but as you begin to write your story, um, chapter after chapter, and you make it through a large part of the book, you'll begin to see a theme in the book. And naturally so, the book begins to title itself. At some point, those words, of the title, it'll come out in your writings. And um, it's actually a beautiful moment. And it's like an epiphany that just hits you. And it was like, this is it. This is the title. So I, I ultimately end up writing the title as I was writing the book. Hmm. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is, this is the book in the whole. And, uh, but the gist of it initially came from uh, my father. My father was a very 
um, stern man, still is a very stern man. And as he was raising me, he was very inclined with uh, being an entrepreneur, being a hardworking man, being all of these different things. And as he went through everything in life, Despite good times or bad times, he never really showed, you know, expressed emotion, should I say. And um, I just saw him just being a strong king through everything. And even up against those tough moments, he remained like his his emotions remained silent. Mm -hmm. And um, he kind of instilled that in me. But the one thing that he instilled in me being a solid um, King growing up actually became like one of my major detriments in life. Absolutely. Uh, because it's it's very unhealthy to keep things bottled up. And I learned that later in life. <laughs> but that's that's just how we grow up as me and my father's from Mississippi and it's like, you know, men ain't supposed to cry type of situations. But um I'm here to like draw the line right there where it's very important for us as, as young black men and human beings period to be Absolutely. in a head space of releasing the issues that we have Absolutely. and being okay with releasing the issues that we have. Uh, Cause if you don't, you know, you're, you're a ticking time bomb and that's exactly what happened with me. So let's dig into the book a little bit and let our listeners know that you wrote this book while serving 17 years in the uh, Cook County Jail. Was it the federal penitentiary? I I, I forget. Um, I did three and a half years in the Cook County Jail, and then once you receive your time, you're shipped off to a prison. Um, I did a portion of my time um, in Stateville, um, very short time. Stateville Shawnee Correctional Center, which is way down south, six and a half hours away from any loved ones of yours, and Danville Correctional Center. Good childhood. So growing up in Chicago, tell our listeners kind of what was that experience like being in the inner city in Inglewood? It was a scary place. Um, I would definitely like to start there. Um, As I wrote in Silent King at the age of 10 years old, I ended up losing, like, one of my best friends. He was murdered. And um, I didn't quite know how to handle someone being in my life every day. And then just out of nowhere, this person is no longer existent. I didn't know how to, like, digest that. And um, days after him being murdered, it was like the entire community just kept moving on with their life. And I couldn't understand that. Like, it was a human being that was gone, was dead. It was, he was here. He was alive. He was laughing. He was all of these different things. And someone killed him. And next thing you know, you know, once they put him in the dirt, it was like everybody was just back to normal life, and it was it was like nothing. And I stood there, and I was I like in a headspace of I was actually afraid of my own neighborhood. I used to have to walk five blocks to go to school, and I remember being terrified walking those. 
five blocks to school. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a big brother. I only had older sisters, and they were old enough to be, you know, gone doing their own things at that particular time. So I remember just being terrified, and I remember gang culture being extremely strong and walking through drug-infested neighborhoods, um, gang-infested neighborhoods, and it just not being safe. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's when I first identified with anxiety. And um, now looking back, I didn't know then what it was, but um, a degree of nervousness, a degree of fear, um, a degree of just don't know what's going to happen. And that's what eventually um, led me to um, wanting a brotherhood. That was my initial reasons for joining a gang at such uh, an early age. It wasn't because I wanted to go, you know, harm someone. It wasn't because I wanted to sell drugs. I wanted to do any of those things. All I wanted was a brotherhood so I could feel safe again. At 10, 11, 12 years old. And I want to read something from your book, Silent King, uh, and, and get your response on it. You you stated in your book on page 47, you say, on March 12, 1995, Jimmy Jones was ready to die. Talk to our listeners and, and, and myself kind of about that experience and that emotion. Even though you fell off the bike, you got hit by a car. You didn't really fall off the bike, but you got hit by a car. And at that moment, laying on the ground... In 1995, you you said to the readers that you actually was ready to die. Right. I remember um, in that moment when I was knocked out in the streets, I remember it feeling at ease, and um, which connects back to the anxiety and the trauma um, behind losing such a close friend. And growing up in an environment where you you went to sleep and you heard gunshots, it wasn't unusual to hear gunshots at the end of the day. It wasn't unusual to see um, people get robbed. It wasn't unusual for house to get broken in, which our house was broken in um, at that particular age. So um, there was an uneasiness that lived within me for 24 hours. I'm pretty sure other people were going through the same thing. But I remember when I got knocked out by being hit by a car, I remember feeling at ease. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to feel at ease in my neighborhood and my community and the people of my community uh, wasn't able to provide that. That was taken away from me before I even really knew what life was. And this is still going on to this very day. Like we're living in fear. I'm in Chicago right now, and I'm 35 years old, and you still have to live with a degree of fear and cautiousness. You just can't move and go places. And I was going to ask you yeah. about that, because returning home to Chicago, and I'm in Dallas, and you know, I, I, I periodically visit Chicago, and for me, I'm like, yo, it hasn't changed. What was your perception, and how did you receive Chicago when you returned home? Uh, when I returned home, it was... Um, the buildings that were bright and beautiful are now dark, dim, and dingy. Like, I have a very good memory. And 
um, places that were, you know, business that were thriving and it was like the spots, they were either broken down, no longer open or tore down. Uh, and it was, it was quite sad. I've never seen more homeless people in Chicago. I've never seen as many homeless people now in Chicago. And it's, it's been quite depressing um, to, to see these things on the flip side of being happy of just finally being free. But to just to roll around the city <clears throat> and see, you know, how things are and things haven't progressed in a way where, you know, <clears throat> life is looking good for people in the inner city. I can't say that it is. It, it it doesn't look like it. Yeah, Chicago is a tough place. We wear it. We wear it on our sleeves, if you will. If it was a body, you can see our emotions and you can feel it. The the, yeah. the the tension is so thick there that you can cut it with a knife. I, I feel like when you get back there, the energy there is, is so low. And uh, so I, I'm praying for my city. I hope that we can overcome, and I hope that you know we can we can build it up to the city that we we know and we once know that it was the the best city in the world. Chicago, Illinois. But going back into Chicago streets, I want to talk about, you know, the time when you um, met your best friend growing up, Nard, who I've known in high school, but you know Nard since elementary school. So we definitely want to give love and, 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 and shout out Nard and kind of speak to our listeners because he is a main character. It, you know, he's like the co-writer in your book. I mean, he is mentioned throughout the book for a lot of his loyalty, his loyal ways, um, with you being, you know, in the um, legal system, but in your trouble. He was a part of that also with you. But this guy remained loyal and a friend to you. So without giving so much away, because I need y'all to get this book. The book is amazing. So I'm going to need y'all to get the book. I'm, I'm giving away some copies. But I want you to tell us kind of, what was their relationship uh, like with Nard growing up? How did you guys meet? And where is y'all relationship to this day? Yeah, me and Nard, uh, we've been friends for so long that uh, we're like no longer friends. We're just brothers. Yeah. And, um, man, he, he, he has a special place in my life forever. And um, we met actually – and I believe kindergarten or preschool, one of the two. And um, let him tell the story. Like we met with building blocks, you know, playing with building blocks. And I came over and asked him if I could, you know, uh, use some of the building blocks, some story like that. I think he made it up, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds good. He loved telling it like at parties and stuff, man, the girls and whatnot, man. <laughs> so... Uh, but yeah, we did actually meet in like preschool or kindergarten and we've been the best of homies, friends and brothers ever since. And we didn't meet in the streets, but we both end up, uh, he don't have any older brothers and we are just months apart in age. So everything that Inglewood was and the, the, um, the threat that Inglewood was. Uh, he and I approached it together and dealt with it together throughout mm -hmm. our entire life. Yeah. And um, I believe that if we didn't have each other, we wouldn't have made it through. 
even though we were involved in a lot of things that were horrible, right? I just believe in my heart that if we didn't have each other, those horrible things would have destroyed us. Um, And I'm just thankful to have him, you know, in my life as my brother. And we're, we're still... Um, close as we were when we were five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. Now we're 35 years old. <laughs> That's what's up. That's a true brotherhood, as you said earlier. Right. You were searching for a brotherhood. And I know I read through the book where Boo Man, the guy who got you off the porch, uh, was, was yeah. one that was murdered. So to have still Nard in your life that's being the, the biggest supporter, uh, I, again, I, I consistently saw Nard come up in this book. In every moment of your life, it was like, and me and Nard and somebody else. But it was somebody else and me and Nard. So this guy has yeah. never left. He never left, <laughs> and he stayed in your corner. But I want to go back to the book without, again, giving much away. But I want to take a read from Chapter 8 when you stated about somebody else leaving out of your life. Um, you stated, you know what they say. You leave a dog alone, and that dog, sooner or later, will start to roam. My mother was the third to walk out of my life, and if truth must be told, at this point, I didn't care who was next. And so early part of, the, of, of, your, of your story and talking to us, and, and, well, our readers, as we're reading through this, 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 this book, is that your mom walked away. As you came home, she's packing clothes and, and walked out of your life. Uh, how did that moment sort of changed the trajectory of who Jimmy Jones was. Yeah, that was a very defining moment in my life. Um, yeah, my mom, she had packed up and left the home, but she did, you know, remain in my life, but it was in a sense of her living in a different location than under the same roof with me and my father. But at 10 years old, you're like, okay, where's my mom? You know, I wanted to be with my mom. And my whole thing was that, you know, I wanted to go with her. Wherever you're going, mama, I want to go with you. And uh, But that changed, <clears throat> that changed a lot because once she left, my father worked 16 hours a day. My older sisters, um, they were old enough to be gone with their boyfriends and their jobs and doing what they do, you know, rightfully so at their age. Uh, And it left me in a place where now Jimmy's home alone, Mm -hmm. you know, at 10, 11 years old, uh, waking up to an empty house because everyone else is, you know, got to go to work. Uh, 10 years old, being handed a key to the home to get yourself up, dress, eat, walk five deadly Inglewood blocks to school. Once you get out of school, come back home, walk those five deadly blocks mm-hmm. again, come back home and enter an empty house. Yep. And yep. mind you, I'm, 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 I'm dealing with trauma as well. So I'm actually afraid to be in the house by myself. So these are the things that, you know, kids are dealing with. And that's why I wanted to write Silent King, just to shine lights, because we usually don't sit kids down. Uh, a, a child ain't going to come to you and be like, you know, I'm dealing with trauma, Dad, you know? Uh, well, they're smart nowadays. They probably know what this stuff is, but, you know, I wasn't as smart back then. I didn't know these things back then. Um, 
So that's 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 that changed everything. Yeah. That changed a lot. But what, and then and there, that's that's when I began to roam, you know, outside of Inglewood because actually initially I was scared to be in the house by myself. Yeah. And that's when I turned to the Jackson uh, family, yeah. uh, which is my second family, and um, they 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 always accepted me with open arms. Yeah, when I read about the Jacksons in the book, I'm like, wait, I know this family. Like, not personally, but I know this type of family where it's a three-flat. You got the folks living upstairs. You got a nice family downstairs. Like, I know that family where they know, like, necessarily so. Your maybe situation is not the best, but they welcome you in, and then everybody know who's selling weed or selling drugs in the house, and it's kind of a thing where you say, like, they just be blind to the reality. Like, wait, your kid is selling weed. You know about it, but it's okay. But that's just the genuine love and the authenticity. I think that people like the Jacksons. I, I related to the Jacksons reading them, so uh, I'm glad that you were able to share a little bit about the Jacksons. And that's Nard's family, correct? Yeah, that's Nard's yeah, the, the, the Jacksons were, were something um, to, to read. Very special I, I, people. Very special people. I enjoy reading about their family dynamic. But speaking of family dynamic, Mr. Daddy O, right before uh, the unfortunate, you know, sentencing and you were, you know, uh, sentenced to, to prison, uh, or while you were sentenced to prison, you discovered that uh, Evelyn was pregnant. So talk to us about that moment when you kind of received that information. How did it make you feel? And did it change um, your next set of years, you know, while being in prison? Uh, yeah, I received that news through a letter, and uh, while I sat in the Cook County Jail. So at the time, you know, I didn't know when I did um, commit the crime that I committed that sent me off to prison. I didn't know that I had a child on the way. Mm-hmm. So I received the news once I was in the Cook County Jail, maybe a few days in or so. And um, I read it on a piece of paper, and I remember just being devastated. Naturally, the next man uh, probably would have been the happiest person in the world. But what made me devastated when I, I received the news, even though, you know, I wanted a child, I just felt like my entire life was over. Mm. I felt that I, I wanted to be hands-on with my child when my child did come, you know, uh, to this earth, and God blessed me with the child. Like, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be the father that my father was to me. And hear the news that, you know, I had a child on the way, but I had just gotten myself caught up into a world of trouble. I knew that it would be a while before I would be released again. Um, so I was devastated. I was I was completely wiped out, and I was so mad that I ended up bawling the letter up. And I remember throwing it in the toilet that was um, in my cell, and flushing it, and just being frustrated with myself. I was mad at God. I was mad at anybody who had a pulse. You know, <laughs> why did you guys let this happen to me? And in that moment, as an adolescent, you feel that when I was 18 years old, and um, I didn't, I didn't digest, you know, accountability at the time, mm-hmm. uh, like I do now. Mm-hmm. But you know, I was, I was devastated because I knew I would, 
I knew my daughter would grow to hate me because I wasn't there. And so talk and that to, was the underlying fact. But talk to us about that now, you know, or not even now. I kind of want to go during the transition because she's 17 years old. She's a beautiful girl. I've seen the birthday pictures and the whole bit, but she is now 17. But during your incarceration, how did you guys kind of rekindle or build a relationship? Yeah, there's no blueprint for uh, once you go to prison and you leave your entire family behind, right? You go off to prison. And I was wondering, I'm like, you know, I would ask guys, I'm like, what do you do? Like, you know, guys would hold conversations and whatnot, but no one was really saying, like, what they were doing for their children and whatnot. Uh, you had a few guys, but I, they wasn't able to give me the answers of, like, how do I connect with my child that I've never been there before? Uh, with before and so I had to figure it out myself like I prayed while I was locked up I was able to get closer with God because you, you hit the floor hard enough you, you're you going to need somebody's help and I remember praying like you know um, seriously for the first time while I was incarcerated but I used to just ask for answers and what I did was you know I would write my daughter um, you were able to send, you know, uh, money from your books um, out to the free world. So during her birthdays or anything like that, you know, uh, my closest friend, uh, which is Julius, Dre, um, and whatnot, I would turn to them, and they would help me, you know, uh, surprise my daughter with gifts. Once she turned 9 and 10, we set it up for her to get a cell phone, I was able to, you know, uh, get things together where I was able to call her directly. She always got a call from me every week, and we will have real-life conversation. And then in there, just through consistency, you know, and me being another person that she could say, well, Dad, uh, I, I would like to have this, and I would do whatever it took, you know, uh, to make sure whatever it was that she asked for, that it would show up at her home. Uh, whether I had to get on the phone and beg someone, man, I need to get this for my daughter. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I did what it took, That's you know, tough. to like win this girl over. That's so at the end of all of this, she wouldn't hate. That's what's up. I, I wouldn't have been able to live with that. I wouldn't be able to smile, you know, with you right now if my daughter hated me after all of this or didn't want to have a relationship with me all the time. That's what it, it wouldn't be worth it for me. Hmm. And I know with writing this book, it takes a lot of time, and you're busy doing that. But while incarcerated, so what kept you motivated to, to really – go on every day you know what are some things or what have what just what kept you motivated uh what kept me motivated is, and this is this is like the just the raw truth um i stepped into prison and i saw a lot of people that have been there for years and ages some people were new there and i had a 20-year sentence right ken i had a 20-year sentence and they sent me to the furthest penitentiary that you can possibly be sent to, right? Mm. It's like 30 minutes away from Kentucky down south. So my, it took my family six and a half hours to come to see me. And 
not many people are trying to drive six and a half hours consistently. You know, six and a half there, six and a half back. Mm-hmm. It's a very long time. So you don't get a chance to see your family as much. <clears throat> and um, I remember just seeing people, men, not doing anything with their life. Just playing cards, watching TV, uh, conversing with each other. And I was like, wow, I have to do this for the next 20 years. And in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be 20 years behind everyone else in the free world. Everyone else is going to be doing what it's going to take to get them ahead in life. And I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to have to start from scratch. And I was, I was fed up with that. Also, I was fed up with, I knew people were counting me out. I knew that people felt like, oh, he threw his life away. And in many ways, it, it did look like that. But uh, I, then and there, I became determined. I have one of those minds. I don't have to hear you say what you said about me, but I can hear what you're saying about me without hearing it. And I'm going to put those words to it. And that set a fire up under me. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to be what everybody think I'm going to be, which was nothing. I knew I had to sit in there, come up with something, and make something out of myself. And I was going to do it with every inch of Jimmy Jones that's inside of me. And that's what I did. And then and there, that's when I began to write Silent King. And you wouldn't believe it. It actually came from me watching a movie that was playing on the deck. Um, Shawshank Redemption. There's a part in Shawshank Redemption where Andy tells uh, Morgan Freeman character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He tells him, he say, "Man, you either gonna do two things. You either gonna get busy living or get, or get busy it. dying." Uh, yeah. And I was like, "Wow." <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was like, "Man, that's that's what we you're doing one or the other. Mm-hmm. You either getting busy living or you getting busy dying." And I was looking around, I was like, this is death. I gotta do I have to do something to remain alive. And and it's not just prison, it's a lot of us out here in the free world. Absolutely. You know, we're doing one or the other. Absolutely. I was gonna say we're doing that. a whole lot of things that's that's getting busy dying. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just not in the prison because some people are in prison mentally. So you can be physically free, but mentally incarcerated. And some people just don't escape. And a lot of people, a lot of people, you know, sometimes live in their own head and just can't escape and just can't. Mike Tyson, he was getting beat for a a nice portion of the fight. Mm -hmm. And his, his back is against the ropes and everyone is thinking that he's about to get knocked out. Uh-huh. He's about to go down, right? That's how I felt. I felt like my back was against the ropes. I had been beat. I had been bitten. I had been punched. I had been all types of things, right? But right there in that moment, right, right when everyone thought I was, I was finished, I was about to be knocked out, my face was about to hit the canvas, I knew that I had, I had some strength still deep down inside me. And I had enough, right? I had enough for one more punch. Mm. Just one more punch, right? And Doug, really, really deep down, 
and I pulled that strength up and I got ready to swing that punch. And when I let that punch go, that punch was Silent King. Mm. That punch was this thing right here. This was my one last punch that I had. And I knew I had to land it. And I put everything that I had into that one punch. And you know what, King? (laughs) That punch landed, man. Absolutely. Listen, get the book. Get the book, people. People will get the book. Get the book, people. Get the book. I don't want to ask questions from the book so much so because then we'll be giving away. So get the book. It's a true story uh, about Jimmy Jimmy Jones. But also when you say you threw the last punch, what was that day like for you, the last day in prison? How did you mentally prepare? What did you do? Do you recall? What was that day like when you woke up and when you walked out the cell do you remember that moment? It was it was very emotional. Very emotional. I had became such um of an important person inside that prison. Uh mind you, while I was incarcerated, um I went to school, got myself educated. Um I sat down and wrote an entire novel. Um after that um, it was time to get the novel published. Did what I had to do to get the novel published. Um, then, behind that, um, the warden and the administration within the prison, Danville Correctional Center, me and a few other guys, we had put ourselves in position where the, the warden allowed us um, an opportunity to file for a grant, um, a federal grant. And within this federal grant, <clears throat> we were able to get um, our certification in uh, mental health first aid. So once while in prison, I got my certification in mental health first aid provider, right? And I was, then and there, I was able to interact with others, uh, sit down and, and, and speak with them as they deal with things as far range from depression all the way to suicide hmm. and um, talk to them, connect with them and get them in a headspace of one, not harming themselves or harming someone else um, and provide temporary help for them hmm. and get them comfortable with me handing them over to someone that's able to give them long-term help. So as I did that alongside of being I'm an anger management teacher. I was an anger management teacher in prison. Um, I was a lifestyle redirection teacher in prison, um, a mentor in prison. And some of the guys that I mentor in prison, like I'm still mentoring them now. Like some of those guys are released and we talk on the phone every day. Um, I'm helping them with their business, uh, building their business, furthering themselves and whatnot. So, by the time the day came for, for, for Jimmy Jones to be released, everybody, it was bittersweet for a lot of people. Mm. And it was, a, it was a very hard thing for me to leave behind people that I knew, you know, mm-hmm. were better men. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very difficult, so much so that it, it brought me to tears to leave people, um, leave good men behind. And uh, to move forward with my life. Um, And to this very day, that's something that still bothers me. 
So there was there was an excitement, but also there was a, a sadness mm-hmm. of walking out of that prison and stepping into something completely new. But I was prepared. Yeah. I was prepared, and I, I definitely want people who watch this interview to know um, – to pass on to their loved ones that's incarcerated. It's a way to prepare for life after prison, where you can come out here and you can do your thing. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that it is a way for guys that's incarcerated uh, to put themselves in position that once they are released, that they don't have to be the guy uh, that's just released from prison at that's looking for a handout or have to be in a place where everyone is taking care of them. You know, uh, you can sit in prison and as we see, write your life stories. Like our life stories are so interesting Mm -hmm. coming from where we come from and the things that we've been through where you can put yourself in a place where uh, even though I did 17 years, doing what I did while doing those 17 years, once I was released, everyone wasn't, everyone wasn't 20 years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like I thought. No, that's I that's for sure. That's and, for sure. Uh-huh. You know, everyone was not two decades ahead of me. Everyone didn't have their head down working. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want my guys that's incarcerated to know, you know, it's the way to beat it. It's a way to 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 take your time that they got you on time out and make that some valuable time that's going to get you ahead in life. Absolutely. It's what you said. You're going to be spending your time uh, living or spending your time dying. And you chose the latter, my yeah. brother. And I'm so happy you did that. Again, I'm happy that you were able to uh, come on this episode to share uh, about your story, uh, but it's so much more in this book. Before you get up out of here, uh, uh, Mr. Jones, I ask every finesse because definitely you're somebody who has finessed the game. Uh, what you have done uh, through serving your time has showed that you can still, again, keep your head down and stay focused. And so continue to finesse the game. You will continue to do that now in this free space you know, in the world that now you're in. But before I get you out of here, I ask my finesses, who's that person professionally or personally that you say that's finessing the game for you? Uh, professionally, I, when I was locked up, I looked at, um, I had people who were very successful, like in the, the industry, whether hip-hop or whatnot, but a Jay-Z a TV Jakes, I used to cut their pictures out the magazine and I would hang their pictures up in my cell. So opposed to focusing on my surroundings, I focused on better living and I would put these pictures up and I would learn these guys' stories, the triumph of the difficulties that they went through, TD Jakes, Jay Z, you know, Oprah Renfrey, all of these different people that were like major successes in today's day and age, and I would turn to them. I listened to Jay-Z, like in prison, we we still had tapes. I had Jay-Z's entire collection, and I would listen to his stories of overcoming, his stories of becoming an entrepreneur, 
turning his drug life into a legit life. Yeah. And I was like, man, you know, if this guy can do it, I can do it right here from prison. And my attempt of being somewhat like them, I was like, man, I'm going to find my way and my way is going to be a, being an author. And I'm going to do it right here from this jail cell. And I signed my publishing deal inside of my dark, cold, blooming jail cell. Dope as fuck. Dope as fuck. <laughs> and the warden walked to my jail cell and shook my hand and congratulated me. That's dope as fuck. Finesse the motherfucking <laughs> game from the cell. Jimmy Jones. Yeah. That was my last question, I thought, but I really want people to hear your um, response to my last question, I promise. What do you want our readers or want readers to take away after reading Silent King? What do you hope that they take away after reading your book? It, it's it's, it's um, kind of two different categories, right? Uh, categories of parents. And then you, I'm going to put a category with the young adults and kids, right? Mm-hmm. Put those two together, young adults and kids. Uh, parents, I want the parents to be able to see this is what's going on with your children. When you maybe not asking the right questions, maybe when you're allowing your children to raise themselves, maybe when you're allowing your children to be alone, when you're not investigating who your children's friends are, uh, when you're not putting time into your children, when you're not showing up at your children's basketball games or uh, violin uh, recitals and all of these different things, when you're bypassing all of these different things, it's having an effect on your children. So that's something that I want parents to walk away with. The children and the young adults and whatnot, I want them to be able to identify with me in that story. And because I was always the cool guy, I was always the guy who had to clear your your um, question. But I want the kids to be able to identify with me. I also see being that type of person that I was, where it leads you to, mm-hmm. because some of them may not be as fortunate to get the sentence that I was given. There was plenty of times in that book when I'm telling those stories where the book had ended after 10 chapters because I got killed, you know, being in some of the places where I was at and being involved in some of the things that I was involved in. Everybody don't get a chance to go off to prison that's living a life that's worthy of being killed or being uh, charged with a crime. So I just want to sign off how I was shipped off to prison for 17 years off a 20-year sentence. So that's what I want them to take away. And also know that they're not alone mm-hmm. when they're dealing with their trauma, mm-hmm. when they're dealing with their fears, when they don't know, you know, which way to turn. They're dealing with insecurities. I pour all of those things out inside sure of Silent King. You sure did. You know, and also females, females that's young adults that's out there, and they want the, the cool-looking guy. <laughs> they want the guy with the car. The you keep it real, yeah. You know, you know, 
what this guy is doing to you. Mm-hmm. And the pressure it puts on you as an individual, as a young kid, you know, that pressure that you put on yeah. thinking, wow, if I don't do or have those things, then I might not get a girl. And this is the same thing that I'm I'm, I'm trying to convey over to my 17-year-old daughter now. <laughs> Now I have to live with the fear. Oh, she's gonna okay, you got – listen, you, you got a lot of work to do because, I mean – Yeah, she's going to run into a Jimmy out there, like, you know, <laughs> the 16-year-old Jimmy, the 17-year-old Jimmy, you know. <laughs> those are my nightmares. <laughs> no, that's that's super amazing, man. I, I, I'm glad to see the pictures from her birthday and you being there. I know that was one day that you were waiting yeah. for. Nothing else mattered but that one day, and I was happy for you to. I was happy to see you know that moment and and uh, you sharing yeah. it with with you know the social media family. But last one yeah. from the book I want to go into. Y'all better get this book because I'm sharing too much of it. I didn't want to, but it was a couple highlights. I just kept highlighting. I even text you. I said, "Dude, I got so many questions." But this last excerpt of the book I think was the most profound because it literally encompassed the entire book but still get the book you read or you stated in this book on page 304 as I sat in the dark cold cell my tears flowed heavily because I was so close to escaping Inglewood with my new family but my time ran out I guess it's true what they say you reap what you sow for the past eight years I had been making my bed the hard way Now it was time for me to lie in it. And to be honest with you, I was tired. I was tired. I was tired. The crown was too heavy for my head. And as as I gracefully fell asleep for the first time inside my county jail, my last thought was simple. I always knew one day Inglewood would kill me. Long live the king. Long live the king because this Silent King book again spoke loud volumes, uh, loud volumes, to, as you mentioned, parents and also kids. But I read that, man, and I thought it was a more transparent, retrospective moment that you stated at the end of the book to kind of, again, encompass your entire journey along the way. Not just the crime that was committed, but the journey of having people to enter your life and to leave your life, the journey of feeling lonely, the journey of having the abandonment. And so for me, reading that, it was really profound about your entire story and but how you rose, dude. How you rose. That long that last sentence, long live the king. That last sentence is literally it, it's the it's it's the celebratory moment for the entire story. It's the moment for me where I said the trumpets will blow and the horns are sounding that Jimmy Jones is not dead. He threw his last punch and he's still finessing the game and he's still someone that's not um you know, he's still someone that's growing, but he's someone to definitely be watching out for. And the many, many years to come, Jimmy Jones, I thank you so much, man, for joining this podcast and this episode and to be as transparent as you are in this book with me today on this episode. For y'all who need to get this book, Jimmy, let these folks know how they, how they can get a copy of your book. Um, it's available on Amazon, uh, Walmart.com. Um, or if you would like signed copies, you can log on to my Facebook or Instagram, um, either one of them, and um, just inbox me. I ship them across the country every day holiday, man. Uh, the book has taken off. People are enjoying this book from California all the way to New York, and it's just an amazing response. Um so, yeah, you can contact me there. Um, and 
it's a beautiful thing, man. I, I, I love where I'm at right now. I love the fact that I'm out and I'm able to sit here with my, my old friend. Um, it's, it's, it's great, man. Thank you absolutely. for everything. Absolutely, absolutely, man. Listen, thank you for again uh, joining this podcast. You guys get a copy of this book. Silent King is definitely a loud banger, so don't be fooled by the title. Uh, I enjoyed literally every uh, read of it, and like I do with most books, I have to go back and read it again because I feel like you missed certain things the first time around. So I'll certainly be taking um, my time out to read this book. I'll be in Vegas next month, so uh, I'll get some time and. And, and read for the second time, man. So please, again, get this book. Silent King is one to read. This brother's from Chicago, Illinois. He is continuing to finesse the game. Let's support this brother. It's Black History Month, so let's support and let's continue to support black businesses. Jimmy Jones, thank you so much, bro, for joining the Finesse Media Podcast Season 3. And you've been listening to another episode of Finesse Media Podcast Season 3. I'm your host, Ken Finesse Media, and I'll see you next week with something brand new. Peace. Thank you, bro. Close there. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 